0: okay how are your not new year's (laughs) resolutions going
1: fine I actually so one of my small things was like just to be consistent with habit tracking um whether I do the habit that I'm tracking or not it's like just mark that I did or didn't like the simplest thing in my new journal to just be like consistent at something I have done that and journaled every night this year just three nights but two nights what day is it? It's yeah. a third. <laughs> I just ate breakfast
0: yesterday and today. I did eat breakfast at eleven thirty AM yesterday. Yeah. But I, I ate breakfast yesterday and today. That was very exciting. Yeah. I also had my green juice as my vegetable.
1: hmm
0: I've eaten a couple of vegetables. That was part of my Yeah. I'm not doing great with my routine, but like I think it's slow and steady. Yeah. Like I'm trying to just do my routine at whatever time and then Right get up
1: a little earlier as I go. It's going okay. Mm -hmm. Mixed mixed feelings about it. Yeah. I have eaten three meals a day the last, or at least like two meals and a snack. Yeah. Yeah. Breakfast is my hardest. That one's been, I got instant oatmeal
0: that, wow, it tastes so much better, so much easier. It did overflow yesterday, but today, no, I stood by that microwave. I watched that bitch. She didn't overflow. So nice for me. Do you think it was because you were watching? Well, I, yeah, because I stopped it
1: and opened it and stirred it. I think that's the key. Yeah, it all gets, especially if you, I put usually more milk in Bubble it, up. I think, than, like, is required because I like it a little bit more loose. <laughs> uh,
0: so it That doesn't... is an interesting word. To describe. <laughs> Oatmeal. <laughs> I was, I was, like, soupy.
1: <laughs> soupy. soupy wet. Loose. And you're like, loose. <laughs> Stools. Some loose stools. Uh, that's uh, the only time I've heard loose really used, other than if you're like, she was a loose wench. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But so mine doesn't explode because it's very like, there's more milk in it. And so it's, I think it's the heat when it doesn't have anywhere to go. It just, yeah. you know. Well, I watched it. It like foamed up. Yeah. What kind of instant oatmeal is this? Apple. Cinnamon. Like from Quaker? Uh, it's Trader Joe's brand,
0: but it's the same thing.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: It's the same. It's the same. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the same, but it does have like some oat, actual oats in it. It's not all like grained up really small, ground up really small. Quaker yeah, mine is isn't like... either. Quaker is a little
1: finer. Mm. Anyways. I just want my soupy cinnamon oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it soupy. I like it soupy. I don't know why. Cool. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maggie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Mad Woman in the Attic. Attic. Ho, 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 ho. Let's, Let's go, go girls. girls. Nice.
0: Okay, so our question of the week. Have you ever had a bad experience with female leadership in the workplace and what happened?
1: You know that scene in The Grinch where have. his like, <laughs> yes. smile curls up? I felt my face do that just then. Yes, I have. Hilariously enough, this person just posted something on LinkedIn recently about how they really like to be an empathetic, understanding leader. And I was yeah. like, no, you don't. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, I feel like... There's been several scenarios. I do think at my second agency, that was the most intense. I was also the most vulnerable at that time. I hadn't been in the workforce very long. And so I didn't know what boundaries to set. I didn't know what was normal. I thought they're asking me to do all of this stuff. And it's like 40 at least billable hours a week, not including admin. Like it was just a lot of ridiculous stuff. It was her and a guy. And I remember when we Approach them particularly about the billable hours situation because we were like, not everything is billable. We have admin work that can't, we're not going to work for 10 hour, 12 hour days to do all of this. Obviously. We need a more realistic expectation for how our hours are tracked. And it's like, you could tell that she went off with the CEO and was like, because we got a follow-up message or something that was like, like a long thing that was clearly like planned out about... Oh, uh, well, we have flexible hours. That's like the reason we have those hours. You don't have to work eight hours a day all in one sitting. And it was just completely missing the point. The point of like, it doesn't matter if it's four hours in the morning and four hours at night, eight billable hours a day plus whatever other non billable work we do is ridiculous. Yeah. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> she struck me as like a. I worked hard and yes. now you must well, because, also work as hard as I worked. And one of the agencies that she had worked at before has like a reputation for being very, we're all winners, you have to work way too much. I feel like a lot of agencies have that mentality. Yeah. And it's just, if. Eh. But there was one specific, the specific one was like, at least for a while, known very much for having a very intense Work ethic and really, like, unrealistic expectations. Yeah. She wasn't one of the ones who's like, I'm going to make sure that other people who come after me don't have to experience this. She's like, I'm going to make sure everybody I Pays manage, their dues. Yes. Pays yeah. their dues. Works really, like, way too hard. And yeah. she, she was one of those people who reminded me of, like, a woman who wants to, like, be in the boys club. Yeah. Hate it. Why would you be in the boys club when you can be in the girls club? Yeah,
0: I think I and, like, most of the women I've worked with have been guilty of the, like, I paid paid my dues, you pay yours mm-hmm. in moments. Yeah, Like, I sure. feel like I, I'm not typically that way, but there have been moments where I think because the generation below us pushes back so much on, like, certain things that were just very normal for us in work c- culture... Right like working overtime or whatever, like just kind of things that sh- they shouldn't be that way. But, yeah. and they're completely right in mm-hmm. not wanting them to be that way, but they just have like very firm work boundaries. And mm-hmm. I remember sometimes just being like, just do it, Yeah, but that's not the way. Yeah, I also had a terrible experience with female leadership that you also already know about. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, my second agency that I worked for, which wasn't really an agency if we're being Honest, Mm -hmm. they told me from the get go. I, it was a job where I, my first week at that job, I called my boss at my old job and asked for my job back. (laughs) That's how bad it was immediately. I've never had that experience anywhere else where like I started and immediately knew it was a bad situation. Mm -hmm. And I actually, my old boss Mm -hmm. was one of my first female. Managers. Mm-hmm. And she actually gave me really good advice where she was like, listen, I can find a position for you. But if you can gain experience at this new position that you won't get going backwards, you should stick it out even if you don't like it. Mm-hmm. And she was right. And I did get really good experience from that job. But the leadership there, it was like a all female, female leadership. Their whole thing was like, We are women, everything in the office was pink. It's a you know bridal magazine and they hire me they wouldn't meet my salary expectations but they said oh you know we just have to like grow this arm of the company and then you'll get your salary it's always no never did it was like i walk in thinking there's a team already that they've brought me in to manage there's no team it was like two part-time people who were also working on a bunch of other projects that weren't really like it, it was like why lie about a position yeah to get an overqualified person that's gonna be unhappy in that role. And I worked there for like a year and a half. They were just miserable. They made so many exceptions for themselves that they should have made for everyone. We didn't even have a good maternity leave policy or maternity leave like pay. We're an all-female company, we had one male employee. Also, he, I think, was the highest paid person at the company. He was given so many opportunities he wasn't qualified for. Mm -hmm. He was always asking me very basic questions that he should have known in his job that I knew the answer to. Mm -hmm. I've had many good female bosses that have been way better than my male bosses, but they were literally like, everything that can go wrong with women in leadership, like the stereotype of what can go wrong with women in leadership. They did and it was so frustrating because it's like perpetuating these things that are so not true most of the time, you know, and it it just made me so mad. It was very like sorority, (laughs) pitting people against each other. It was very gossipy. They wouldn't give people salary increases. They wouldn't give people titles that they Mm -hmm. deserved. I like did my job well. The second I started, they were like undermining my knowledge about things that they had literally never even done. Oh. Hated them when I left that job. It was a huge weight off my shoulder and they had Mm -hmm. no boundaries. I had been there maybe two months and my boss was calling me on Christmas Eve. We had a week off. They told us, oh, we have a week off for the holidays. And I was so excited about that because my last job had been very corporate. We had only had like five paid days off or something for the Mm -hmm. year. Like it was a really small amount. So I always really had a hard time like going to visit my parents for the holidays. So I was really excited about having a week off. I go to Colorado to visit my family and she's calling me. We're literally driving to church and she's calling me on Christmas Eve about something I had literally asked like, ten times before the break about and then she like for no reason starts tail spinning about it over her break.
1: Look, our last agency, I remember over Christmas, we we're like, okay, we all get a break. Yeah, great. I think, like, that's becoming more common and I think is a really good thing for there to be an expected break around holidays. Yeah.
0: And it makes it easier for everyone to take a break when it's, like, a very
1: common thing to do. Yes. But I remember being told to check my email once a day. That's not a break. And I was like, that's not... A break. And That's that in particular, break. even though it's not a big task, I'm just looking at my email. If there's nothing to respond to, I'm, it's five minutes, you know? Well, but what the if is? idea is that, yeah, <laughs> what if there is? And also we have communicated for so long that our entire team will be out during this week and a half. We are yeah. setting the expectation with clients, if we're responding, that we're actually always available, which is not good. And like, nobody's going to die. Yeah. Because of content marketing. And most clients I can see if you're in a PR closed. agency and it's like, there's social going out or something like that. And it's like, oh gosh, something, you know, we got to handle a yeah. situation. like Or like
0: certain industries where like Christmas right. or Thanksgiving or like that holiday season, like mm-hmm. e-commerce or something. Like right. there's some industries where like that is your busy time and you shouldn't be taking
1: off that right. week. And In industries that aren't
0: that? Yeah, where like a lot of your clients are closed that whole week. It's like, nobody cares. No. Like there's like the toxic girl boss image that I think can be really confusing. At least in my experience, it was like, it looked so beautiful and fun Mm -hmm. and pink and great on the outside. And then in it was like the most toxic work culture I have ever worked in. The women I worked with were amazing. It was the leadership that made it toxic. And I think we all would have been like much closer friends. It was the quietest office I have ever worked in. It was like an open office, pretty small room with a bunch of people packed in it. It was, like, no speaking. Weird. I have never worked in a place like that. It was so weird and totally not my vibe. Like, no. Like, I cannot work like that. I need to have a little gabbing. Yeah. That's when I'm most – my most productive. I need to gab. We need to have a morning gossip session. We need to go for a walk over lunch. Like, yeah. if it got too loud, the owners would come out of their offices and, like – reprimand us
1: it reminds me of that cut scene at the beginning of stardew valley when it like pans across the joja cola and everybody's in their cubicle and you pass by one that's just a skeleton in the office seat, like they just died there
0: just miserable they had flexible hours where they would come in late in the morning but like if someone else came in late and they happened to be there that day Mm -hmm. you would get in trouble coming in late. Super weird environment. I had to hire someone like my second week there, who's one of my friends now. It was like an hourly part-time position. Like she's newer to the workforce, Mm -hmm. but she had experience. She was by far the most intelligent, capable person I interviewed. The number of times my boss called me into her office to be like, do you think that we should fire her? And it was purely because she did not fit the image of the company, which was basically sorority.
1: That, I think, is the downfall, and I think people are kind of starting to realize it. You've looked for, like, a good fit for the company, and it so often centers around a certain type of personality, a certain type of person, and I think it's especially hard for, like, introverts, mm-hmm. because they're not going to be engaging as often. Yeah. Yeah. There's this documentary called Persona, and it talks about how so many companies are using personality tests yeah. as part of the hiring process. And the way it eliminates, especially like people who are neurodivergent yep. or Terrible. disabled, like there's literally someone in, I think, New York or maybe another big city who runs classes for people who are trying to get jobs yeah. on how they can take these like personality cheat the system. tests. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, People who are maybe neurodivergent or just like think differently, aren't reading between the lines, aren't catching that, hey, this is a trick question yeah. to see if you would do X, Y, Z. It's like they literally have to train these people who are struggling to get jobs to answer these Personality tests a certain way. And what does that do? Especially on creative teams, I think it creates a whole, like we talked last episode. So homogenous. Two episodes ago about the echo chamber of creativity. Yeah. Your creativity is going to be stunted. It's automatically going to prioritize, like, a certain type of person, too, yeah. like probably white people. This came up at a it's recent awful. job of mine
0: where we were talking. It was an internal
1: promotion
0: and we were talking about several of the candidates and one of the things that came up was i think this person would fit into our team better because they work in the same way that we do they would approach it and like we were like managing people on the team it's like i can understand the need, like the desire for consistency in leadership mm-hmm. but there was another candidate that was a very like outside of the box had a lot of skill sets that the rest of our team didn't Mm -hmm. have. And I remember in that call being like, why do we want someone who's the same? Right. Don't we want someone who's different than us?
1: (laughs) Feels weird. You have to act out where we were. Um, Yeah, for the
0: audience, my my storage was full and I just had to troubleshoot something on my phone. And then we went back and watched the video so that I could clip in my audio to finish my sentence. Yeah. Anyways, any additional thoughts on women in leadership? Just... Having people who are
1: different than you, I think, is going to also add to your creativity. It'll, yeah. like you said, someone who's out of the box, it's, they're going to challenge you. And I think yeah. people don't want to be challenged, especially people in leadership, mm-hmm. because those people may challenge their yeah. opinions. And I think a lot of people in leadership see that as a threat. I also, most of these tests, most of these applications seek out leaders, Mm-hmm. You can't have all leaders. Yeah, I think and that's I true. And I think that is how so many people who are really good creators, writers, graphic designers, whatever, end up in a management position that they're terrible at mm-hmm. because you've hired like these people who are, should be creators mm-hmm. and you force them into these management positions that don't fit. Yeah. Or you've hired a ton of people who are all the leadership types. Yeah. And it's just going to be constant headbutting because everybody leads in a different way. Like, you need to have people who are the doers on your team. And excited about that. And excited about it. And I think that also is why it's so important to ensure, like, fair pay for the people who aren't in management positions. Because people then want to stay in those positions if it's what they like to do. Because they're not trying to scramble for a legitimately good salary in a management position that they wouldn't be good at.
0: Yeah, and I feel like the companies I've worked at, even the ones that did have advancement for doers, mm-hmm. there was very subtle pressure that you couldn't just continue excelling at that skill set. You had to become a leader. You had to yeah. diversify your skill set. You had to get people management. Mm-hmm. You had to get team management. You had to get client management. You had to get mm-hmm. all these other skills. For some roles, like I feel like for a lot of creative roles, for example, client management is a skill you need. Right. Like yeah. that's part of it. Like, you'll be hard-pressed to find a role where you can just be creating Mm -hmm. and you don't have to interface with someone, Mm -hmm. you know. But, like, there's, like, this weird messaging where it's, like, the job I do, the job that I'm good at isn't valid unless I'm, like, moving into – and everyone can't be a VP. Everyone can't be a director. Everyone can't be, like – C-suite. Yeah. So it's like, where do the rest of the people go? Yeah. And I think it does make people butt heads. Like, yeah. people aren't good at healthy conflict at work where it's not like you're in a fight. It's like, we have a different approach to this. Right. Let's talk about it. Yeah.
1: And I think founders and CEOs in particular are guilty of not wanting to relinquish some of their quote unquote power and control because they see it as a threat to their own position. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately it ends up really hurting their own team in numerous ways because it would have been better for them to stick to what they're good at and what they know and let other experts in other areas work together as like a holistic Mm -hmm. team and to then listen to those people's advice. Yeah. Especially when they're an expert in something you are not an expert in as a founder or CEO or, you know, top leadership person. Yeah. Like, you can't just take your title and assume that that means that everything you think about how things should be done is how it should be. Founders and CEOs, y'all have the worst
0: reputations. Yeah. Like, for just being annoying. Yeah. I do think men, obviously, like, started a lot of that, you know? But I have been disappointed by some, not all by any means, but by some of the female like top leadership at companies that I've worked at where mm-hmm. like they say they do things differently, but then they really don't. And it's like really disappointing when you have worked with so many like toxic male founders and CEOs, mm-hmm. whether they're your boss or your uh, client or whatever. But like, I think when you get a female boss who says they do it differently or a female client who says they do it differently. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come to find, like, actually, you're just exactly the same. Ho
1: ho 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 ho! ho. Storytelling Story time. ASMR always. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs>
0: okay, Indira Gandhi was the first and only female Prime Minister of India. Wow. During her tenure, she was one of the most powerful women in the world. She was named Woman of the Millennium by the wow. BBC and listed among Time Magazine's 100 Women Who Defined the Past Century. Like many powerful women, her legacy is complicated. Her supporters praise her for her strong leadership during challenging times and her work in economic development and poverty alleviation. Her critics, however, cite controversies around her authoritarianism, suspension of democratic rights, and even forced sterilization. (laughs) There's no denying that it's
1: giving La (laughs) Voisin.
0: There's a lot. There's a lot of previous people we've done that she connects to. There's no denying that Indira Gandhi, who I admittedly have never had never heard of before prepping for this episode, Mm -hmm. is one of the most important female leaders in history. She's arguably one of the most important political figures in history despite the fact that she is entirely left out of Western curriculum. So was Indira Gandhi the savior of the poor and rural classes of India? Or was she a problematic Nepo baby who abused her power to eliminate anyone who opposed her policies? Let's get into it.
1: C. (laughs) (laughs) Mysterious, not so mysterious, third option.
0: (laughs) Yes, and shout out to our friend Viraj, who recommended this mad woman to us yeah thanks virage thanks virage love you for our listeners virage is our most loyal listener (laughs) (laughs) he's our most loyal listener his thoughts every wednesday i love it we get a group text from him like (laughs) almost every wednesday or sometimes thursday if he's off his game, right? <laughs> With like very heartfelt feedback on the episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, if you are follows on social media, he also modeled our hats. For yeah, he our was the star of. He our was the slow motion walker video. in the, in the yeah. reels, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which he had to get in character for that. Yeah, there's a longer version of that video of him leaning up against a wall for approximately a minute. <laughs> Getting into character. Centering himself. <laughs> and it was specifically that video where they had, like, all of, like, the big villains from movies modeling mm-hmm. in, like, a high fashion show. Yeah. And he pulled it up, showed it to me, and then said, hold on, I have to get into character. <laughs> and that was the best take. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Anyways. Okay. So first, let's set the stage. Okay. Because Gandhi's rise to power happens, and we're talking Indira Gandhi. (laughs) Thank you for the clarification. (laughs) To not confuse anyone. Uh, Because her rise to power happens at a crucial time in India's history, we kind of need to understand what's going on. Right. So after 89 years of British occupation, India gained independence from British rule in 1947. Which was sparked by India's increased political, economic, and military influence in World War II was kind of like leverage for them to gain independence. Mm-hmm. Following independence, the subcontinent um, was partitioned along religious lines into two separate countries India, which was majority Hindu, and Pakistan, which was majority Muslim. There were a series of like turbulent events following that separation that I won't get into today because mm-hmm. it's just too much to cover. <laughs> but like generally speaking, there was economic and political instability, which is common in like post-colonialism. Right. So at this time, the Indian National Congress leader, Jawaharlal Nehru, became the first prime minister of India. Mahatma Gandhi, who is most associated with the independence struggle, doesn't accept any formal office after India gains independence. This is an important place to pause for a note you may notice that their their names were Nehru and Gandhi. Nehru, the prime minister, is Indira Gandhi's father. Mahatma Gandhi, no relation, just okay. to clarify. Even okay. though they were alive at the same time, they're both involved in the independence struggle. They have the same last name, no relation to him, but the prime minister, Nehru, is her father. Okay. Okay. In 1950, India adopts a new constitution, making them a democratic republic with Westminster-style parliamentary system of government, both at the federal and state level, and their democracy has been sustained since then. So that's Mm -hmm. where we are in India's history. Okay. Okay, so rewind a little. Indira Gandhi was born in 1917 in Allahabad, India. Her father was, as we already mentioned, Jawaharlal Nehru. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so he later becomes the prime minister, but he's also like a leading figure in the movement for independence from British rule throughout um, Indira's childhood. Yeah. So he's kind of like a big political figure even Mm -hmm. before he's prime minister. So she grew up as an only child. She did have a younger brother, but he died very young in childhood. So she grew up as an only child, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly with her mother, Kamala Nehru, who was also an independence activist. Um, And they lived on a large family estate in Allahabad. Her childhood was obviously extremely privileged. They were very wealthy, (laughs) but somewhat unhappy. Her father was often away directing political activities. He was sometimes incarcerated for his uh, political activism. And she had limited contact with him, mostly like through letters as a child. And her mother was often like ill or bedridden. And that was like her primary parent throughout her childhood. Mm. Indira had an extensive education in in India because she was from a wealthy family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she later went to study at the University of Oxford. However, her education there was frequently interrupted by her own poor health and her mother's poor health. Mm. So Indira makes frequent trips to Switzerland for medical treatment. This is also where her mother was being treated for tuberculosis, uh, which she eventually dies of in 1936. (laughs) So we see Indira like frequently leaving school to go to Switzerland Mm -hmm. for medical treatment, both hers and to like help care for Mm -hmm. her mother. She was even stranded in Switzerland during the start of World War II. So while she's in school, she goes to switzerland world war ii starts there's conflict she's stuck she tries to get back into england through portugal and ends up getting stuck there for two months um so it was like this huge thing she manages to get back into england in early 1941 but from there she returns to india without completing her studies at oxford um but the university later awarded her an honorary degree So she didn't actually finish her college degree. Mm -hmm. During her stay in Britain, Indira frequently met with her husband, Pharaohs Gandhi, no relation to Mahatma Gandhi again. And she knew him from Allahabad from home. And he was studying at the London School of Economics. He was a journalist and a member of the Parsi community. Um, And then they had two sons, Rajiv and Sanjay Gandhi. In like the mid 40s, and that's all we're gonna say about her husband and kids.
1: <laughs> that's literally <Nice>. my last
0: <laughs> note about them. <laughs> Get out of here! Don't care. <laughs> so, onto her early career. <laughs> <laughs> Just a football punt. All right, <laughs> punt those kids into the sun. <laughs> I did read a little bit more about them. Maybe I do have one more note about one of her sons. We'll see
1: <laughs> if he makes the cut.
0: <laughs> so. Uh Indira's early career was shaped by her association with the Indian National Congress or the INC in the 1930s and her active involvement in the country's struggle for independence. So obviously she had a foot in the door. Her father is the prime minister. Right. <laughs> also, like, apart from... I see where the Nepo puppy. baby is coming in. Yeah. And apart from, like, Gandhi, the other Gandhi, Mahatma, he was, like, one of the main figures of, like... Indian independence. Right. So he's, like, a huge name at the time. Mm-hmm. So obviously she has a foot in the door. Her mom was also an activist, although I didn't find a lot about her. Interesting of you history to leave her out. Hmm. Um, anyways, we won't get into that. In September 1942, Indira is actually arrested over her role in the Quit India Movement, which was a mass movement, but also, like, a mass protest led by Mahatma Gandhi, Um, She was released from jail in April 1943, and I have a quote from her about her time in prison, which said, mud entered our souls in the drabness of prison. When I came out, it was such a shock to see colors again. I thought I would go out of my mind. Yeah. (laughs) And like, listen, prison is hard, okay? No one's saying it's not, and we love her work as an activist. But I did pull that quote because it—it was giving nepo baby. baby. (laughs) It was giving you know the rich sleep on a cot, right? For a couple months. (laughs) I'm so sorry, respectfully.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because how long was she in there?
0: I don't know, maybe six months. Looks okay. like September to April. So a while. Yeah, yeah. A while to be in prison, but it but was... to be. Like, I could never the, see color again. The drama. To the drama. see color. Yeah. I mean, poetic. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. So her first real entry into politics happens in the 50s. So this is post-independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and she serves as a personal assistant to her father while he's prime minister, which gives her like really important insights into how the government functions and international affairs. And I thought the most interesting part of this is like her father is the first prime minister. Like it's this new system of government Mm -hmm. after independence. So it's a very interesting time for her to be like learning how things work because
1: everyone else is learning how things work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And she's obviously like very intelligent. She's very well-educated And she's his assistant. I think kind of like unofficially is her first role. Mm -hmm. And learns a lot while she's there and also i think like his connections like clearly in even before she's in an official capacity Mm -hmm. she's learning from all of her involvement in the independence movement yeah so in the mid-1950s the congress party faced some internal conflicts leading to a split indira aligns with her father's faction she very much like aligns with him politically And she works her way up through the ranks of the Indian National Congress. And eventually she serves as president of the Congress like towards the end of the 50s. So she is like working her way up very gradually. Mm -hmm. Her father dies in 1964 and she is appointed to the... Rajya Sabha, which is like the upper house. I probably mispronounced that. Apologies. And she also served in the next prime minister. So her father's predecessor was Lal Bahadur Shastri. She served in his cabinet as minister of information and broadcasting. I also saw a note that she's she at one point was minister of labor, but I couldn't find like whether that was in her father's cabinet like later. Mm-hmm. Or if it was in the next prime minister's cabinet. Yeah. But all of the roles she kind of serves under her father, and then for this next prime minister, really start to shape like her very strong political views, mm-hmm. which we'll kind of get into later. And in January of 1966, so only like two years later, Shastri dies, and we have a bit of a Hatshepsut moment. If you haven't listened to the Hatshepsut episode, it's episode. Seen. Seven, I think. I think. so, yeah. I think it's episode seven. So Indira is elected prime minister mm-hmm. at this point. And many male Congress veterans, so a lot of the male leaders of her party, are key to her victory, and they're hoping to use her weakness as a woman mm-hmm. to their advantage, essentially wanting a puppet
1: mm-hmm. as
0: prime minister.
1: Yeah, hat chip suit.
0: Yeah, and initially this was her perception, like both politically and in the media, she is seen as weak. She's called in the media gungi gudia, which means like dumb doll. That was like often how she was referred to in like her first year or two. Wow. But her public image evolves throughout her 11 years as prime minister to a strong leader with an iron resolve to split the party over her policy positions. I will say she has the longest Wikipedia page (laughs) I have literally ever seen. (laughs) So there is a lot that we're going to skip over to hit what her biggest impact was And I think what's really interesting about her is, like, she had a lot of really strong initiatives Mm -hmm. and, for the most part, seems to be, like, looked back on very, like, fondly. Mm -hmm. But almost everything is sprinkled with a little controversy. Right. (laughs) So we're going to get into that. Mm -hmm. So first, I want to start with the good-ish. The Mm good-ish. Okay. So one of the things that she is most known for early on as prime minister So she's elected in 66. This was in 71. So one Mm -hmm. of the most significant successes of her tenure as prime minister was her leadership through the Bangladesh Liberation War in 1971. Mm -hmm. India intervened in the conflict, leading to the creation of the independent nation of Bangladesh. So in a letter to Nixon, she said, all unprejudiced persons objectively surveying the grim events in Bangladesh since March 25th have recognized the revolt of 75 million people. A people who are forced to the conclusion that neither their life nor their liberty to say nothing of the possibility of the pursuit of happiness was available to them. So she concluded that instead of taking in millions of refugees, um, India would be economically better off going to war against Pakistan. Hmm. And the decisive military victory over Pakistan not only contributed to regional stability, but also enhanced India's global standing. Mm -hmm. So that was very important, and a lot of people respected her leadership, even though it was fairly early in her time as prime minister, and it was like a very difficult time, and a lot of people respected her leadership through that. Another key initiative of hers was the nationalization of banks in 1969, so this was slightly before the Bangladesh conflict. Um, the nationalization of 14 major commercial banks in 1969 was a bold move that aimed at reducing economic disparities and promoting social welfare. This policy was intended to bring banking services to rural areas, which was a huge focus of hers throughout her political career, um, and prioritize the needs of the poor. It is often credited with laying the foundation for inclusive economic growth. However, there was it was like a controversial move. I read that she announced the nationalization of banks without even consulting the f- the finance minister at the time so like within her own party and within her cabinet there was like some questions around it um also it was opposed from like business interests and some Mm -hmm. people who wouldn't benefit from it. Basically there was like some opposition against Mm -hmm. it. It did like seem like kind of a controversial move, like the way she went about it. But that is a good example of like how she kind of was very like decisive Mm -hmm. and like knew what she wanted and just kind of did it. The green revolution was a huge initiative of hers. She played a crucial role in the green revolution. It wasn't like necessarily her initiative. It was like a, initiative of the time, but she was very important in the Green Revolution in India, which was an agricultural transformation aimed at increasing food production, which was in part in response to like growing population Mm -hmm. to accommodate how many people there were. This was like through the use of high yielding varieties of crops, modern farming techniques, irrigation, pesticides and fertilizers. So it was really like updating farming practices to kind of more like how they are today. Mm -hmm. This initiative significantly boosted agriculture, productivity, ensuring food security for the growing population. Major milestones of the green revolution were the development of high yielding varieties of wheat and rust resistant strains of wheat were like very important in India. Mm -hmm. However, since then environmentalists have kind of like analyzed the green revolution and the practices that came out of it. And many environmentalists say that it caused greater environmental, financial, and sociological problems like droughts, rural indebtedness, and even farmer suicide. Reports have shown soil deterioration from the use of chemicals, which has led to the collapse of agriculture systems in many regions of the country and negatively affected the farmers' um, food and water supply. So since then, like in more recent history, there's been criticism, but at the time it was... Not just happening in India, it was like widely well received and it Mm -hmm. did benefit a lot of like the rural communities at the time. Another noteworthy kind of part of her leadership was a nuclear test in 1974, which was codenamed Smiling Buddha. Mm. So, under her leadership, India conducted the first successful nuclear test. While this move was controversial and faced international criticism, Mm -hmm. it did establish India as as a nuclear armed state and demonstrated the country's technological capabilities. So like in that sense it was positive.
1: Yeah, like a take us seriously mm-hmm. thing.
0: Yeah. She also pursued policies to strengthen India's industrial base, focusing on public sector enterprises uh the establishment of like steel plants heavy industries and infrastructure projects aimed at reducing dependence on foreign imports and fostering self-reliance a variety of initiatives that like were right. generally really positive for mm-hmm. india as a whole poverty alleviation was one of Indira's biggest impacts and is often what she's remembered for today. So we already talked about the nationalization of banks and the green revolution initiatives, those were kind of part of poverty alleviation and part mm-hmm. of her like overall campaign and image of being concerned with the poor. Right. And just like poverty as like a national issue in Mm -hmm. India. One of the most prominent initiatives other than those two of her poverty alleviation programs was the Garibi Hateo. campaign launched during the 1971 election. Uh, So this was part of her Mm re-election. This campaign focused on addressing poverty through a combination of economic and social policies. So it's kind of like a bucket campaign. And her vision was to uplift the poor and provide them with better opportunities for economic advancement. Um, she also implemented land reforms, that was a huge part of her work, to address agrarian inequalities and empower landless and marginalized sections of society, providing a means for livelihood for those who were economically disadvantaged. She launched various rural development programs to improve infrastructure, healthcare, and education in rural areas. The idea was to create a more equitable equitable distribution of resources and opportunities with a focus on reducing urban-rural divide. She implemented employment generation programs to create job opportunities for the poor, initiatives like the National Rural Employment Program, or NREP, aimed at providing employment in rural rural areas. I'm going to struggle to say I rural. I hate
1: that. Yeah, I hate that word.
0: Uh, helping to alleviate poverty by enhancing income levels. To address hunger and malnutrition, the government, under her leadership, worked on strengthening the public distribution system, or PDS, and other food security measures. This included the distribution of food grains at subsidized rates to the economically weaker sections of society. And she introduced various social welfare programs to provide support to vulnerable groups, including women and children. Uh, these programs encompass healthcare, education, and nutrition, aiming to improve the overall well being of the population. And these efforts are really what earned her the nickname Mother Indira, which is kind of like. Similar to like Mother Teresa, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it was a play on Mother India because her name is similar similar to India. And just like the work she did for the poor. She obviously like had a huge focus on rural communities and like. That was a good one connecting the divide (laughs) so that was like her best work there was some controversy even in her good work where there was like pushback on certain things or like maybe the progress we've made since people like look back on it a little differently than it was received at the time um but she did do a lot of work for the poor she had a huge impact on india especially like i think one thing that's cool to consider is that she was really only like the third leader since indian independence so like the ground she covered, I think, is pretty right. impressive. Yeah. Now we can get into, like, her most controversial.
1: Oh, boy. I'm so excited.
0: <laughs> Stuff and it does get a little rough. Oh, no. <laughs> so one of the most controversial periods of her leadership was... She declared a state of emergency in 1975. It lasted from June 1975 to March 1977 and was marked by the suspension of civil liberties, the curtailment of democratic free- freedoms, and the suppression of political opposition. During the emergency, it's it's kind of like referred to as the emergency now, there were several key actions that were, I would say, questionable at best. <laughs> Here we go. So, first, she suppressed her opposition um, by arresting opposition leaders suspending elections, and detaining political activists without proper legal procedures. So this happened over the course of years. It was quite extensive.
1: Oopsie. Um, (laughs) Yeah. She
0: imposed strict censorship on the media, severely limiting the freedom of the press. Uh, Publications were censored or sometimes shut down entirely. Journalists faced pretty strict constraints, and the news was often controlled by the government during this time.
1: Oopsie times two. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. Among the worst atrocities during the emergency was forced sterilization, which is kind of
1: what people. Oh, I forgot in you had her. said that at the beginning. Yeah, when Virage first
0: recommended her to me as a story, this was one of the things he mentioned. It was kind of what got like perked perked my ears up yeah. a little, where I was like, "What? How Sounds have I like never heard
1: of her? Mad woman!
0: Yeah. So, as part of a very controversial family planning program. There were reports of coercive measures, including forced sterilization. So it's kind of like questionable what happened. There was like this family planning program to address uh, population growth, which was a huge issue at the time. The policies aimed at controlling population growth were criticized for violating individual rights and lacking proper consent procedures. And it seemed like this was particularly problematic in rural areas where people might more easily be coerced yeah. into these procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also seems like they might have targeted specifically poor rural Oof. people, which was like very contradictory to a lot of her other work. It seems like Maybe she genuinely thought it was like a helpful measure, but also like really seems like she didn't view these people as people in right. the same way she like viewed I want herself Like, you as, out of poverty, but
1: I also want you to just not exist. Like, I want to do that by making the poor people
0: yeah. so like, existent. <laughs> well, on the one hand, the population growth was part of what was contributing right. to this like extensive poverty mm-hmm. problem, but like not giving people the choice. right is wild. Yeah. And I think that is where, like, her very wealthy upbringing and probably, like, lack of exposure to these communities in any real way might have, like, really impacted the way she handled these policies. And
1: I imagine just... With the culture being a lot more like multi-generational, bigger families. I mean, obviously I would care if I had undergone forced sterilization, even if I don't want kids, because that's like a consent issue. But I imagine even more of an issue in a culture with people who are very multi-generational families and stuff like that, where it's like that's you, you know, have kids. Yeah, and she was an only child, which is also... Makes also more sense why she kind
0: of was like... Might have thought about it differently. You don't need that many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the sterilization was to toward men. It mm-hmm. wasn't targeted at women. It was targeted at men. Mm-hmm. So, interesting. I wonder if that would have been different under male leadership.
1: Right. But Well, um, men can create lots of babies. Mm-hmm. Technically, throughout their lifetime, women are limited. Yeah, but often forced (laughs) procedures are on women. Yeah, totally. So it's
0: interesting that, like, under female leadership is an example of a time that it was forced on men. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, like, a weird issue. Because I also, like, I sometimes, the population of the earth sometimes keeps me up at night. Yeah. To be completely honest,
1: it was <laughs> like, 6 billion when we were, like Not even in a kids. joking way. Like the population of the earth does keep me up yeah, at night Yeah, I remember learning it was like growing up, it was 6 billion. We always said 6 billion. And then it was like a couple years ago that someone like said it's nine, 9 billion. billion and I just had never thought over the course of my life about how that number would be increasing. Ballooning. By that much. Yeah. And it was like, I heard 9 billion. I wanted to throw up. Yeah. And I do so. think
0: people should have less kids, yeah. but I don't think it should be forced on No.
1: You. Yeah, I think I think it is a more ethical choice to have fewer kids. Yeah, I think kids. it's like people who have
0: like 16 children, I think is completely irresponsible.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I wouldn't take that right away from them. Right. Okay. So that was one of the more questionable. The emergency also led to the suspension of several fundamental rights including the right to freedom of speech and expression, the right to assemble peacefully, and the right to move freely throughout the country. The government's yes. actions were criticized for authoritarianism and the erosion of democratic values. Mm. So it was a brief period of time. It's like a, a state of emergency. Like it, right. it kind of is like a pause on the rules.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, like home quarantine, stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. we yeah. got to... Stop. <laughs> yeah, or like in a crisis, shut down. Anytime there's been like
0: a state of emergency, like mm-hmm. in my lifetime, it does kind of like suspend the the normal like rules of government, right. And sometimes like the rules of society. Mm-hmm. But what was most interesting is that i I didn't really find like there was like reasons she cited for the state of emergency, but I didn't really find why?
1: <laughs> like mm-hmm.
0: what justified it. Yeah. So that was very interesting because it was like a very like unstable time. Right. It didn't seem like there was like a catalyst right. of like something happened and it like, that pushed them into made a state of, an emer- yeah. state of emergency. So that mm-hmm. was interesting, confusing to me. Yeah. So thousands right. of people, including political activists, journalists, and members of the opposition were arrested during the emergency. The government used the Maintenance of Internal Security Act to detain individuals without trial. The emergency officially <laughs> ended on march 21st 1977 when indira called for fresh elections the janata party a coalition of opposition parties won a decisive victory in the elections held later that year leading to the formation of a new government with morarji desai as the prime minister
1: that was she got ousted
0: yeah people were not happy with fair that time yeah right. okay and then one of the other v- pretty bad pretty bad (laughs) was Operation Blue Star in 1984 I feel like
1: anything with Operation in front of it is probably militaristic yeah (laughs) so
0: so she was re-elected though so uh, which I didn't write this down and I should have but she was beat in the 1977 or 78 election but she was re-elected afterwards interesting and that's when Operation Blue Star happens in 1984 so she's Prime Minister again in the 80s her decision to order Operation Blue Star, which was a military operation to remove Sikh militants from the Golden Temple in Amritsar, proved highly controversial, and we will quickly find out why. So, in the 1980s, there was a rise in Sikh militancy with demands for an independent Sikh state called. Ka- Mm-hmm. The Golden Temple, uh, the holiest site of Sikhism, became a focal point for these activities with armed militants using it as a base. The operation was carried out in June 1984 and resulted in significant casualties and damage to the temple, which was a sacred site, mm-hmm. leading to widespread protests and anger, particularly among the Sikh community, obviously. Right. And one of the reasons it was so. <laughs> like confusing mm-hmm. and felt more atrocious was that the operation was conducted from June 1st to June 8th, 1984, which was during a Sikh festival when the golden temple complex was crowded with pilgrims, which oh. led to way more civilian casualties oh, no. because so many people were caught in the crossfire. And it's not, it wasn't really said like whether that was intentional or not, mm-hmm. but like, why would you have that operation during a festival? Right. Like, okay, there's these militant people that are at that temple. Even if it wasn't a festival, there's always going to be civilians there. Yeah. The
1: goal would should be to reduce civilian casualties. Yeah. It
0: didn't... Uh, to re, I mean, I wasn't familiar with this before I read about it. Right. Yesterday and today. So I will not claim to be an expert in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. <laughs> However, like when I was reading about it, it just seemed like... It seemed like, okay, they're... Their justification of it is okay, we're not going to allow this like militant religious faction, right? In part to protect the civilians of that religion, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, in so area, why would you go about live it in this there. way?
0: Yeah, why would you then kill a ton of civilians? I couldn't even find like there is no official number of deaths, it's like mm-hmm. a very wide variety. But it was crowded at the time. Even, f- like, if you don't take into account the casualties, mm-hmm. the Sikhs, just to destroy, like, one of the most sacred spaces. Right. That alone mm-hmm. is, like... Egh. Yeah. So, not well received. Mm-hmm. And also, there was a prominent Sikh leader who... Was leading this like movement for the independent Sikh state, and he mm. was killed during the operation, and that was also not well received. Mm. So the aftermath of Operation Blue Star resulted in widespread outrage among the Sikhs worldwide, and ultimately yeah. resulted in Indira's death.
1: Oh, right.
0: So <gasps> she was assassinated by two of her Sikh bodyguards. So following the operation, she had two bodyguards that were Sikh. Their names were Satwant Singh and Beant Singh, B-E-A-N-T. I don't know how that's pronounced. And she was killed by them at her residence in New Delhi on October 31st, 1984. So very much like a vengeance
1: assassination.
0: I assassination.
1: Part of me is like, did she really think she was so right in those actions that her Sikh bodyguards wouldn't be a danger to her? I don't know. Like, it's weird to think that she would have even... Like, if I had just done something that horrific, I would automatically be like, "Uh, well, maybe my bodyguards who were, like, of the same religion or people Mm -hmm. might not be the best options for bodyguards. So it's weird that she didn't, like, replace them or... Yeah, and within... So it seemed
0: like the, like militant kind of group. I don't know if that was like received well Mm -hmm. by all Sikhs at the time. right? But it did seem like the shift to an independent state was widely supported by Sikhs. And I would guess, my guess, which is only slightly educated, (laughs) is that she understood the implications of that kind of attack. Yeah. And that it wasn't going to be received as just against these militant mm-hmm. Sikhs, but that it would be really seen as, like, an attack against this independence. Yeah. Which is just mind-blowing, considering she was such an important part of Indian independence. Right. I felt like, in reading about this, that she fumbled the bag yeah, on that one. And To put it lightly. <laughs> um, following her assassination, there was, like widespread chaos and violence in parts of Delhi and other cities, and Sikhs were targeted in anti-Sikh riots, Mm -hmm. resulting in horrific acts of violence, arson, and looting. Many Sikhs were killed and others faced displacement and suffering. So it kind of reminded me of like, recent events that we are living through now, where like conflict in one part of the world can really instigate violence everywhere. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about a group that there is a lot of prejudice against. Mm -hmm. So I think that was like a very important piece of this conflict, that this is a Particularly a religion where there is a lot of prejudice against Sikhs Mm -hmm. already. Yeah. And so, following this type of conflict where there's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of very strong feelings about it, and like the results were very bad. And so, Mm -hmm. you can understand why her bodyguards would feel so passionate, like passionately about it enough to assassinate her. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't said like whether. It was like they were hired or they were, you know, part of like a bigger right, plan Right, just something. were
1: outside her office one day kind of talking about, like, do you think that was or good? Or if it though? was more like
0: rage and it was more personal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I don't know the answer to that, but so Oof.
0: very complicated. And her son took over as prime minister and implemented another state of emergency, which my uh, – this is more a question than a thought. <laughs> like, I thought it was interesting that they are a – Democratic Republic, and that three of the first four prime ministers were related.
1: Yeah, it feels very like monarchy. <laughs> yeah,
0: like I thought that was really After getting odd.
1: independence from
0: monarchy. I thought that was really odd. So there is nepotism right. in politics, obviously. We see that mm. everywhere. But it just felt like three of the four leaders were related. And just the fact that she was female right at that time to have leadership, like obviously family ties were so mm-hmm. important. And he wasn't elected into the role. Like he just kind of like took over in like an interim way and then initiated another state of emergency. Mm. So several individual individuals were later convicted and sentenced for their involvement in the assassination of the anti and the anti sikh riot. So it did seem like her assassination might have been like a bigger picture initiative. Uh, Just because there was, like, a lot of people arrested. Mm -hmm. The legal process took years, and some argue that justice was not fully served against her killers. Yeah. And the current sentiment towards her is definitely mixed. I felt like she was very, like, widely remembered fondly, like, for some of the stuff that she did. Yeah. Like, she she is, like, portrayed kind of as this, like, Mother Teresa figure. Mm Mm-hmm. And I can see why with all the work she did for, like, poverty. But I did think it was interesting that some of the worst things seemed to be glossed over. Yeah. It goes back to, like, I wonder if she had committed some of that. If it had been against a group mm-hmm. that would make more people angry. Right. she would be remembered. If that would impact Like, it.
1: French Revolution. All these, like, massive weight, like, income gap. Like, I, you have just turned... The large majority of your population, the low income folks, no income folks, lower class people against you, against these small group of leaders who maybe have military, but like still (laughs) it's a small group of people. I'm honestly curious
0: to see like how public perception of her changes over time, because it does seem like she's still kind of like beloved Mm -hmm. but i do think like her impact on both india and like the world is undeniable i think it's Mm -hmm. so cool like what she achieved as a Mm -hmm. woman at the time obviously like her family connections gave her a huge leg up but it's still impressive right like that she gained so much power and respect Mm in the 70s yeah in india As one of their first prime ministers and to this day, the only female prime minister. Yeah. But obviously, like, the criticism against her is fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, even just how, like, the Green Revolution is kind of, like, being criticized now with what we know about, like, its long-term impact. Mm -hmm. I think there's just, like, a lot of nuance to her public image. gray area. But even, like, one of the things I thought was really impressive was, like, her her public perception from when she was first elected, she was really seen as like a joke.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: And how she changed that over her career to be almost like feared, like a man, like a yeah. strong, powerful man of that time would have been. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. And I, I even though I don't agree with some of her <laughs> actions, like yeah. I do think her very like decisive forward way of leadership is Mm -hmm. something that like women weren't really doing at the time. Yeah.
1: So that's Indira Gandhi. Cool. It's always interesting. I know logically that someone could like really care about a certain cause Mm -hmm. in a very morally right and just way. And then do something bad in another area. Yeah. But it's interesting to see it because I feel like we get such one-sided views of most politicians, especially female politicians. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear like all of the things that she did on both sides of that morality spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like she kind of has this public perception
0: that is similar to a Mother Teresa Mm -hmm. type. The fact that she's called Mother Indira. Mm -hmm. Do female leaders have to be maternal in order to be
1: loved? I think it helps
0: for sure. Like her initiatives of caring for the poor and caring for women and children.
1: Yeah. We've talked a lot about how women with masculine qualities traditionally, like Mm -hmm. assertiveness is labeled as aggression, etc., And if you have this kind of more maternal nature approach, then I feel like people can much more easily, as I mean, seen here, overlook some of the things that probably would make most female leaders hated. Hated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. And
0: I I think that there was... Clearly, like, a mix of qualities about Mm -hmm. her, like, even her association with Mahatma Gandhi, Mm -hmm. who was seen as so peaceful and Mm forward-thinking and, like, so beloved and crucial to Indian independence and that her father was associated Mm -hmm. with that, that she was associated with that. However, she was not poor. Yeah. And I feel like that was important because, Mm -hmm. like, she was advocating for the poor, but she wasn't herself – yeah. So it's like, oh, how good of her, right? Where I feel like when you get into a lot of politicians that we see today, like like AOC, yeah, came from a very normal background. Mm-hmm. She is
1: fighting for her her own battle. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yes. Like, and, and I think that's why it's so rare for them to actually because I feel like most of the time those people don't make it out of these grassroots organizations and local elections. Yeah. They can't go as far.
0: I think when, especially in politics, I think when a woman who comes from, maybe not poverty, but like more humble beginnings, Mm -hmm. it's how dare you ask for more. But if you have a really wealthy woman that has everything in the world that she needs, oh, how kind of her to To give more, more, yeah,
1: you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like when men talk to other men about how we need to be better, how they need to be like better to women and understand consent and all this kind of stuff. And the men are like, Oh, good point. But a woman, a woman, a woman tries to talk about it and they're like, stop, you're whining. Or like we talked several episodes ago about someone in adjacent to our friend circle, a, a woman who's a doctor having yep. people doubt her and it's like, well, I bet if one of those male doctors came in and told that guy, this is your fucking doctor. Yeah. He'd be like, Oh, okay. You know, yeah. like I just, especially in the political landscape uh-huh. at this time, which yeah. is predominantly male is yeah. predominantly wealthy. Yeah. And why so many to even with like race, like I feel like so many white folks when they're genuinely interested in unlearning mm-hmm. some of their like bias, a lot of times they go to books like White Fragility, written by a white author, yes. instead of just listening to people of color and what right. they're saying. Right, and I think there's an importance in like that advocacy for people. I think mm-hmm. that is important. I yeah, don't think totally. White Fragility is a bad book, mm-hmm. but I think that is such like a the babyest initial step. Yeah, a gateway book. Hopefully, if that's the only one you read, and you never read anything by a black author. Mm-hmm. Anyway, now I'm going off on a separate tangent. Yeah. But well, I do think like
0: it's interesting that like she made so many harsh, harsh political calls, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like is not remembered as being angry. Yeah, like I feel like Elizabeth Warren, AOC, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. It's like. People who don't like them are like, "Well, they're bitchy. They're yeah. angry. They're too loud. They get mm-hmm. too animated." And it's like, "That, yeah. that was, it drives me insane." Mm-hmm. But she is not spoken about this way. Yeah. And even though like I would I would argue that some of her policies and some of her decisions were way harsher, you know, than some of the uh-huh. women today, the female politicians today who are given that that stigma very mm-hmm. much so.
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm.
0: Okay, so another question. How do we feel about nepotism when it benefits minorities?
1: Oh, that is a big ol' complicated question. It is. I think nepotism in general is like a complicated thing because I think there are, of course there are people who are really skilled. I think of it's a big conversation around actors and writers now. Like there are people who are very skilled who are nepo babies. Yeah. And... Sure, I think deserve the recognition they're getting as an actor. But, like, would they have ever gotten the exposure they needed to get there without being a Nepo baby? Maybe not. There are plenty of really good, brilliant actors out there who never get off their local stage. Yeah. Because it just – it takes, like, luck and connections, honestly, to be born into the right family. So more than that, I think, like, having –
0: I think even just, like, in any industry – In any field, it's the connections, but Mm -hmm. it's also, like, the exposure. Like, when you think about, like, how influential your family and, like, Mm -hmm. your parents' friends and the community you grew Mm -hmm. up in, like, how influential that is on your interests. Mm -hmm. Like, the electives you take in school the yeah. degree you choose in college what college you go to what mm-hmm. neighborhood you live in like we live in a really artsy neighborhood yeah if you go tw- 20 minutes north of us you're not gonna find that yeah it's what you're exposed to as a child is so important so mm-hmm. I think like nepotism is really confusing because it's like of course it uh disadvantages people mm-hmm. or advantages specifically people yeah but it like doesn't really you know if you don't have that family connection, you're disadvantaged right out the gate. Yeah. But also, like, I don't think there's anything anyone can do to completely get rid of nepotism in the sense that, like, even companies that have very strict nepotism rules, where it's like, mm-hmm. we won't hire someone who's related to leadership or whatever. Yeah. You're still it's still getting this, gonna... like, influence. You're getting connections. You're getting influence. You're learning, like, even just her exposure to politics at a
1: young age. Yeah. Or you're going to get your buddy's son hired. Yeah. You know, even if it's not a direct relation, I think that is overlooked a lot, especially in corporate culture, how often it's like, like I'm at a point, we're both at a point in career where we have enough connections to make a living freelancing, for example. Mm -hmm. And so those connections, but like we had to work for those connections throughout our career. And I think that's the big difference is like these people born even if they're not into the family itself if they're adjacent to the family it's like you were born with these connections already in place yeah but like one example where like my dad
0: and I Mm -hmm. both started contract businesses in the same industry Mm -hmm. at the same in the the same year yeah and we mostly worked separately we have independent businesses Mm -hmm. but he got a couple projects one year that he needed help with and subcontracted to me. He also subcontracts to a lot of my friends, Mm -hmm. all women. Yeah. And I think, like, one good example of it is, like, I'm super qualified for that work. Honestly, if he did a whole interview process (laughs) and didn't know me, I probably would still get it. Right. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, he pays me and the friends I refer to him really really well. Yeah. He was my highest paying client and it wasn't because I was related to him. It's because he feels it's important that wi- young women who are qualified for work are paid what their work is mm-hmm. worth. So he pays me and my friends and anyone who comes and subcontracts for more him more than they
1: ask for sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, one of our friends who subcontracts for my or used to subcontract for my dad, he pays her more than what her
1: asking mm-hmm. rate was Yeah.
0: and I think there is like a good side of nepotism where like mm-hmm. with minorities, I think those connections can be the only foot in the door you get. Yeah. But obviously there's a dark side. Right. <laughs> yeah. to it, Where I think often it just perpetuates the success of the
1: same groups. Right. I think there's an obligation as, and I think even we count like, you know, born into middle class. Like I think we're born white. Like I yeah. think there's, an obligation or a responsibility Mm -hmm. for people in that position to make sure that they are using that to, to spread that those connections out across different kinds of people. Of course, people don't do that very often, but I do think like people like your dad, it's like, okay, there's a lot of privilege in that position, but like he is choosing to use that to help others get advantages that they may not normally have. Yeah. Even like my first internship in college,
0: was at my dad's job mm-hmm. and they didn't typically do interns. Like they didn't yeah. have internships. I, I begged them to create an internship. They had a really strict policy of not hiring family members. And I like coerced them <laughs> into like creating an internship for me and that it didn't count if it's an internship and that I promise I wasn't trying to get a full-time job from them. But I lived in a pretty small town that did not have companies I could intern at. I right. didn't even have an internship program in my degree program in college because I and I asked about it and was told like there aren't any.
1: <laughs>
0: and they're telling me, oh, apply for this internship in New York City and I'd have to pay to live in New York City for a summer. And I was like, I can't afford to live in New York City for a summer. No.
1: Especially when internships pay so poorly or not at oh, all. Oh, they were
0: unpaid. All of yeah. them were unpaid at the time. And it was like, oh, find temporary housing and I'm like what? Like, who can do that? Not me. The I whole, can't do that.
1: I mean, I could go on forever about the idea of unpaid internships and how it literally just excludes anybody who is yeah. not a upper class paid, rich person. I think even if it's
0: paid, there's always going to be like the jobs I really want. I wanted to go into publishing, mm-hmm. and the internships I really wanted were in Chicago. They were in New York City. they, they were in L. A. They were in these big cities that. In no universe could I afford to live it's not there. not accessible, yeah. Even for a short time, like mm-hmm. I couldn't. And, yeah. And so, even if you were paying me $10 an hour, or $15 an hour, or $20 an hour, which mm-hmm. was unheard of at the time, there's no chance in hell. And most of them were unpaid, where like I would have had to quit my part time job in college, which was also not really an option for no. me. And like, I don't come from like a, Poor background. I'm from a very firmly middle class background. (laughs) And so, like, I think that was, yeah, having that internship at my dad's job, while I did advocate for it, like, obviously, I got it because he had influence there. Yeah. And that was absolutely why I got my first job in marketing with an English and music degree from a small liberal arts college in a small town, like, obviously. And so, like, I probably wouldn't even have the career I have without that. And Mm -hmm. it was absolutely because I got an opportunity through a parent. So I think, like, it is a way if you don't have other opportunities to make opportunities for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, often just benefits like white golf boys. (laughs) Yes. Okay, why aren't global politics more important in Western curriculum?
1: I well, <laughs> I mean, I think the huge part is that these curriculums would have to cover like the good side of political systems that they don't want us to like, mm-hmm. and um, the bad side of political systems that they, they do want yes, us to like. Exactly. I mean, I think that is probably the most, the biggest reason yeah. is just as a form of very subtle, insidious propaganda. Yeah for the current political system in the States.
0: Yeah, it's always wild to me. Like, I remember my mom saying that when she was in school, the United States was the biggest country on the map
1: in her textbook. That, look, you read about stuff like the Red Scare Mm -hmm. with all the communist stuff. It's like seeing the kind of propaganda people were exposed to, there's part of me that understands how people got so fucking freaked out mm-hmm. by communism because there are bad examples. Yeah. 100%. Just like with any political system, there are bad examples. But it's like the, oh gosh, I even had, it's mentioned some in like the book about women in the CIA that I'm reading, like the depth and detail of the mm-hmm. propaganda that was in every single level of media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah is insane. Yeah. And so people were obviously scared and they were never shown any of the good sides of something. Yeah. That could work well, when done right by the right people. We're seeing that now with censorship
0: of books in all levels of education around LGBTQ education, around mm-hmm. race issues where it's like I think people are so afraid to show both sides of something mm-hmm. and I think it really does a disservice to our education system where you should get both sides like yeah. that's part of developing reasoning it's part of like
1: mm-hmm. being able
0: to look at multiple perspectives
1: i think that like builds a better world right and it's like it's again it's the gray area like i have there's i think i don't know if it's james baldwin maybe who said something like i love my country mm-hmm. i love the united states and it's because of that that i critique it so heavily. Yeah. And that's it's like you can do both. Like educating kids on the terrible history of genocide and colonialism and racism and slavery it does not necessarily mean that then those kids are going to have to grow up and hate everything about the united states. Yeah. Hopefully what it happens is that they grow up and are like we are going to create a better future. Yeah. But that's, you know, considering the idea that like people in power want the better future as well. Yeah. And they often don't. So yeah. of course they're suppressing it. I
0: think even like that green revolution example where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, now that time has passed, we've seen implications of this that of course they wouldn't have known at the time. right? But I think learning that doesn't make you hate right that legislation or hate that initiative mm-hmm. It makes the next generation think, oh, how can we do a better job of right. thinking about the impact of this 30 years from now, 100 years from now? Mm-hmm. Like, how can we do more research about things so that we're thinking about longevity of these programs? Right, That is, like, to me, a true education where mm-hmm. you're, you're teaching children how to reason. Yeah. Like
1: <laughs> and how to like be better thinkers. And to see through the propaganda. That yeah. is still so all over the place. Yeah. And in I, so
0: many different directions. Yeah. I don't know if this is the case around the world. I feel like in the United States most people have a very limited understanding of international politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of world religions of, like, the history of, like, major political and even, like, military players. So it's, like, you kind of, like, learn about, like, X, Y, Z certain figures. Yeah. Mostly their importance in relation to the United States Mm -hmm. and, like, our history. Right. I think we're very limited in our Mm -hmm. understanding of global politics. Yeah. And I think it's because we're not getting, like, their actual histories right of course you can't learn everything yeah but i feel like we spend way too much time on on certain things and mm-hmm. then you like miss huge i mean india is huge yeah and it's what the second biggest population in the world the I think so. biggest population in the world i don't ever remember even
1: talking about india at all no it was, it was just ever mentioned in my education. And just europe yeah china I learned where our countries were. I remember a song teaching me where all the countries in the Middle East were. I don't think <laughs> India was ever mentioned mm-hmm. in any history lesson I <laughs> the ever the only done, reason I had which any, is so crazy. Even just small concept of like British colonialism in India is because of a fiction book series I read that was about a girl who grew up in that era. Yeah.
0: It's wild, yeah, and I think it's doing a disservice. Yeah, I thought she was a really yes. good one. Yeah, thanks Virage for the recommendation. Yeah, thanks, it's it did. Awesome. It, it It was the first person I've done. Like, there's uh, most of the people we've done. I was familiar, like I at least knew of, mm-hmm. except for Monfassone. Voss, oh, I, yeah. I had not heard of, but she's like more obscure. Mm-hmm. Why would I have learned about her in school? You know right. what I mean? This was one where I almost got angry reading about her because I was mean. like, why did, have I never heard this name before?
1: she because it was so recent. So
0: recent and so important. Yeah. (laughs) I just, it's just like, and the things I had to Google while doing this research where it's like, I've never heard of this. Huge,
1: very important yeah. conflicts, very important political ramifications worldwide. <laughs> yeah, it's, and not a global example, but my dad talked about how when he found out about the Tulsa race massacre, he grew up in Tulsa. Yeah. he went to a public high school in Tulsa, and yeah, he didn't know about it. this until later, and was like, "What?" Oklahoma loves to censor their education. They do, yeah. <laughs> but I remember him taking us like to the spot where it happened to tell us about it, and he, you know, he said like. This is where all this happened, and I did not learn about it in school. Yeah. You know? Hannah and I didn't live there, but he thought it was important for us to know about it.
0: Yeah, and I feel like when we were in grade school, that was literally when they were shifting the conversation around, like, Native Americans. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the way our parents were taught that history. I think it's still... Yeah, the cute little Charlie
1: Brown Thanksgiving.
0: But... I feel like when we were in grade school, it was like just starting to
1: shift. And even the way we were taught is insane. The Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special, there is one black child in their group. Mm-hmm. And they all come over for Thanksgiving. And he like welcomes, Charlie Brown welcomes everybody. Hi, hi, hi. And then when the black child comes in, he does like a like a fist bump handshake thing. And then Hannah, my, Hannah and I noticed it last time we watched it, but then it's, like, at the Thanksgiving table, the black child is the only one sitting on the other side of the table. What? And it's, like, an attempt to be inclusive, but also, like, you you did it yeah. wrong. <laughs> so that's- even stuff like that, that's just a small, like, you don't even, I wouldn't have even thought about that as a child. But it's, like, this subliminal messaging and bias that's just being built in even to our, like, children's entertainment. Oh, yeah. I have watched several, like, 90s, early 2000s
0: shows, mm-hmm. and it is always astounding Yeah, how they write, like, the one Black character, the one Asian character mm-hmm. in the show, and it's
1: like... Yeah, right. And it means that even like, I don't remember my parents teaching me any sort of bias, like, because there are plenty of people out there who do, they're like telling their kids, like, blah, 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 whatever, sexist, racist, whatever. And I don't remember my parents ever saying, I don't, I can't remember a single time when I was a child of my parents saying something that I'm like, ooh, that was bad. Yeah. But there was still this media that I consumed around me that even if it's like you have parents who are, you know, even kids now who have parents that are very actively like anti-racist, anti-sexist, it's still, they're still going to at some point be hit with these messages. Yeah.
0: I also feel like exposure is very important. Mm -hmm. It's like, even if you have parents that are, uh, you know, whatever, doing the work. Yeah. (laughs) If you're going to an all white school yeah all which i did white, other than like two
1: people <laughs> like
0: every community you're a part of is mm-hmm. all one thing all mm-hmm. one religion all one ethnicity what message are you really getting right you, you know? may not
1: be overtly racist it as care. an adult it but you're going to be committing you. microaggressions for sure yeah, because you're not
0: aware <laughs> it doesn't really matter what they're telling you because your whole life is a mm-hmm. reflection of only your experience yeah Okay, let's play unhinge on Hinge. Okay, unhinge on Hinge. You haven't been on the dating apps very Not much really. lately. No. Yeah. I've been dating a lot. It's been a focus of mine. Yeah. You're doing great in the last couple of months. I do feel like I'm kind of finding my footing with dating. Yeah. Uh, it's a little time consuming. 50% of the reason I don't <laughs> try.
1: <laughs> I'm a little tired. I want to like, sit on the couch and play my video games. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I
0: feel like I've gone on a lot of first dates yeah uh, a handful of second dates just since like before christmas yeah Maybe i shouldn't say this on a podcast because all of the men that i'm going on dates with they're like i'm gonna listen to the podcast and i'm like
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ooh. Ooh. okay ah. <laughs> but I, like, went on a couple first dates before Christmas, and then I mm-hmm. also, like, matched with people that seemed like, oh, this is someone I would want to go on a date with. Right. It was like, oh, yeah, my parents are going to be in town, you know, until whatever date. It was like, that day came, and it was like, hey, when are you free? <laughs> like, oh. <sighs> Oh my god! Or I texted you from the gym parking lot. It was like, what's today? Thursday. It was like a
1: Wednesday hit, and I'm getting asked you had literally said this. in the gym. I think I got to drop one. This one hasn't respo- hasn't asked me out again. So I think texted me again. It's in, in the parking lot. I got a text like, he just asked me out. I was like, damn. Ugh, but
0: lot. it is, it's hard because it's like, I think there's a benefit to like dating multiple people at once. It forces you to kind of take things slow with everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I just don't have the time to like see you multiple times a week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think that's helpful to kind yeah. of like have time in between dates. I also think it kind of like takes the focus and the pressure off of one person. Yes. But the hard part is like even people I don't like come like immediately connect with on a first date, I think like a second date is usually helpful where you're Mm -hmm. like, you know each other a little better, you're a little more comfortable, you might not be as nervous, especially someone who like might be shy or like get really nervous for a first date, which I think is completely understandable. I think like a second date can be a good indication of like, okay, is this actually someone I want to spend time with? So I'm like a huge, like I'll go on a second date with most people, Mm -hmm. unless they're like a huge walking red flag that I just really didn't like them. Right. Just to like get to know them a little Mm -hmm. better. But who has time for that? <laughs> Not me, obviously. Not me. Not me. <sighs> Anyways, I have seen a couple of red flags on Hinge lately that I wrote down. Okay. The first is I have something on my profile about like, I am I'm a funny girl. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm a funny girl. I like to laugh. I like to joke. I'm a silly goose. I want a, a partner or someone I'm dating. I want them to also have a good sense of humor. I say something about that on my dating profile. The number of men who, like, take that and open with a joke, like a knock-knock joke type of joke, i like, immediate ick. I will literally immediately unmatch someone if they open with a joke. Just relax. Do less. Just say, hey, how was your day? Great opener. Don't hit me with a joke. Especially if you're not going to provide the punchline. A lot of them will do a a question joke where they'll just ask the question and they want me to respond. And I'm like, first of all, how do I respond to that? The response is like, I don't know what hate that. I'm never going to send that to someone. Second of all, I don't have the information up front of whether you're actually funny. I don't know if it's actually a good joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that is unfortunate. Don't do that. I, <laughs> I do think occasionally people will have jokes on their profile that I think are funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but don't open with a joke. It's ick. I just had someone recently, you know, people will use dating profiles while they're traveling. Mm-hmm. Put it on your profile. If you're in town and you're trying to get laid on a vacation, put it in your profile. Don't waste my fucking time. Yeah, I had a brief conversation with a person and then he's like, do you have time on Friday? I'm flying back home to Boston on Saturday. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why would I want to hang out with a person I'm never going to see again? Bye. Don't talk to me. Put it in your profile. That way I can make an educated decision before I match with you.
1: Yeah. Ugh.
0: <laughs> I'm already too busy. Don't waste my fucking time. Yeah, And then the worst red flag of all, man, keeps match- he keeps liking my profile, and it says on his profile, the prompt is, I'm convinced that, and his response is, all girls are the same. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, then be
1: gay, because why are you trying to date women <laughs> when, when you're saying that? Also, yeah, we're all awesome. <laughs> we contain
0: multitudes. We contain multitudes. Shut the fuck up. That guy, every time he comes up on my profile, I want to match him just to
1: degrade him right. at this
0: point. <laughs> I won't, but...
1: Yeah. There's yeah. that song that I thought at first was saying, like, I'm not like other girls, but it's actually saying, like, I'm just like other girls, like, and it lists things. Yeah. You know, and it's it's really, it's a sweet twist on that. I... Yeah. Anytime a guy says that, I'm like, no. It's, and it's guys who think girls are NPCs. Right. Ugh.
0: Yeah. Because the thing is, if anyone is going to be flattened, Yeah. In our narrative arcs on this reality of existence on Earth. Is it going to be the girls? No. We're so interesting. We're so beautiful. (laughs) We're so fun. We have so many hobbies. Yeah. We are so great. You know who's boring? Men. (laughs) I hate to say it. Is there social conditioning that led to that? Yeah. Yes, it's not your fault entirely, but, like, you are definitely more boring. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to exclude the gays and gays because they are amazing. Right. But, like, the straight men, <laughs> they're boring. You are the most boring faction of society. <laughs> like, and, like, that's okay. Yeah. You have strengths, pheromones, for example. <laughs> you can open jars sometimes not always depends on the man sometimes you're really big and that's fascinating to look at (laughs) but like for the most part when we talk to you lackluster right not all but many Mm -hmm. many (laughs) many are lackluster (laughs) so um take that off your profile (laughs) dumb 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 dummy Yeah. I also recently, like, because Oklahoma City is a small town, small community, (laughs) now all of our friends are on the dating apps. We're all just matching with all the same people, all of our single girlfriends. (laughs) We have a little bit of a system where we, like... The system
1: is you warning everybody.
0: Well, yeah, because I know all the freaks. And I just had a friend, though, like, a guy I had been on a couple of dates with, he did not have conservative on his profile when we matched because I Mm -hmm. don't match with people that say conservative on their profile. I will match occasionally with someone who says moderate, but has like other qualities that overlap with me. Mm -hmm. And she said his profile said conservative, which means he had like changed it, but he left it off of his profile when we matched. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense, first of all. And second of all, Just be honest. Yeah. Because then you get people you have stuff in common with. Right. And you're not not going to like like you either. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you're not going to get along with me. Yeah, I I think there are some, like, liberal people or moderate people who would get along with, like, other people. But, like, a conservative man isn't going to want to date the co-host of Mad Woman in the Attic. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he's not going to like that I just said that men are lackluster. (laughs) (laughs) We're like the liberal men will be like, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) you know, the men who
1: exclusively date bisexual women, they'll get it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The men with carabiners on their front. And that's why they have the attitude of, man, I'm so lucky to have
0: gotten this girl. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I know who I'm compatible with. I'm just going to be honest, you know? Yeah. So anyways, those are some of the red flags I've seen lately. And wish me luck. (laughs) I do think the hardest part of early dating is like when you do get to a point where you're like, there's nothing wrong with you. I just don't know if I want to keep seeing you. That is so painful. I hate it. Yeah. And you know, it's coming. Like when you go on a couple of first dates at once, you're like, well, obviously I can't continue to date this many people. Like someone's going to get to a stage where I'm going to have to be like, "Mm, so long soldier. Yeah. I've literally been Googling. How do you have that conversation? (laughs) What do you say? Give me a script. And do I have to call them because I don't want to? I do think there's certain people where you have to say it to their face. There's other people you can just text. Yeah. But I have learned the hard way that sometimes it doesn't matter what you say, they don't get it. We won't name names. <laughs> <laughs> and girls, just never give a man your address. Never. No. <laughs> you can be married to him. I don't want him to know where you live. <laughs> oh. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh,
1: what else? Anything else going on that we should mention? I am so distracted by watching this to make sure that it doesn't end now. We had that so many I just technical. feel like I zoned out the last
0: 10 minutes. You didn't. And also, I have told you about my dating escapades every moment of every day for <laughs> the last like month. I've heard it all. <laughs> so you're bored. You're bored of me. Fair no. enough. Sometimes I get bored of me. <laughs> That's called depression. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was dark. I apologize. <laughs> you can right. find us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash MadwomanInTheAtticPod. Pod. You can find us on Instagram at to- and <laughs> you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at MadwomanInTheAtticPod. And you can find us on our website at MadwomanInTheAttic.com, <laughs> where you can send us emails and messages. That's all, folks. Ho, 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 Bye. Love, Love ya. ya. Holy shit. My iPhone storage. What the fuck? There is so much space. Do we need beers? <laughs> that would be a good transition to be like, okay, hold on. Sorry for another, my storage was full again. <laughs> and now we have beer. <laughs> I'm
1: going to put you into the sun with Indira Gandhi's husband. <laughs> Oh my God, Luna, I'm going to punt you into the (laughs) sun. All right, here we go.
0: We popped beers because you have got to be fucking kidding me. (laughs) Okay, Okay. well now I'm covered in beer. (laughs) (laughs) My pants are wet. I confirmed that there's storage, but I swear. Oh my God, my glasses are wet. (laughs) My glasses are covered in beer. I'm gonna be here for
1: (laughs) 40 years later. (laughs) It's because we said this is gonna be a short one. What the heck? Oh no. Why did this stop?
0: (laughs) No curse. I swear to God. We're gonna make it. This episode is cursed. (laughs) Our audio just (laughs) randomly stopped recording. It has never done that ever.
1: It's there. The audio is there, but it's
0: not playing. This is when we call it a day. This cursed. This one's going to be terrible for you. <laughs>